morning. So I think this is the third time I've been with you guys. Uh, it is always a pleasure to be with you. Uh, particularly, I just love the worship that you guys do here and the, the flow of it and the music is gorgeous. So kudos. It's really great. I look forward to coming here. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you or the ones in the pews, flip to Psalm 24. That is where we're going to be looking today. Uh, my name is Andrew Barber. I teach at the Stony Brook School. It's a boarding school across the street from Stony Brook University. We've been around for a while. We're coming up on our 100th anniversary, which is pretty exciting. It's a Christian school. It's a boarding school. We have people from all over the world, which provides for a lot of really interesting stories. Uh, what provides for more interesting stories is I'm the father of three boys, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a month and some change back there with the beautiful lady, Jessica, uh, Murray, George, and little Wendell who we will probably hear occasionally in this service. Thus far, he's been, he's been the best kid in terms of, uh, Murray and George are older too. When they were hungry as babies, like everyone knew it. Wendell's more like, uh, excuse me, excuse me. Uh, just needed a little something. It's hard to even tell he's upset. <laughs> so, good stuff. Alright, so we're looking at Psalm 24, and Psalm 24 is called a royal psalm which means that we're thinking about the kingship of God and the fact that God is, is the king over everything. And the way that this psalm would be sung, as people have surmised, that this was often sung after Israel won a great victory. And they would be marching either to the conquered city or back to Jerusalem to celebrate, one of the two. And as they would be marching towards the city gates, they would, they would sing out this psalm. And you can imagine if the Israelites had conquered a place and they were coming up to the enemy gates and people would be wondering what is the nature of this group of people, what kind of God do they serve, and they would get a little bit of an answer with this psalm. So let's read it together, be thinking about that and picturing kind of this group of people walking up to the city gates as they read it, and then we'll pray and get into it. The earth is the Lord's. In the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for bringing us together today. I thank you that you have preserved people who bend the knee to you, who proclaim that you are king. I thank you that spread all over the world are people who worship the same Savior, who see in you hope for this world and for themselves. Please speak to us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, when I was in St. Louis, I went to grad school in St. Louis, uh, I had a past, uh, there was a friend of mine who was a pastor, Dan Doriani, incredible man, and one story that has stuck with me, uh, there was a, a moment of upheaval in the church that he was at, and at one point an elder who was well-established, uh, married, had ki young kids, uh, unfortunately committed suicide. And 
A friend of mine was a secretary, and she said that when the wife came in to speak with uh, Reverend Doriani, they met for about an hour, and she left. And when Dan Doriani walked out, he was visibly shaken and spoke to the secretary and said, that woman's husband just killed himself. My friend asked him, how do you do this job? You know, how do you deal with the weight of all this that constantly comes at you? And his answer was, I weep. And I thought that was a pretty good answer. And I, th- I think that's a place that a lot of us find ourselves in, in, in that there are a lot of things in life that make sense with the way we think the world should work and how God should work. And so good things happen to good people a lot of the times, and you work hard and you get good things a lot of the times. And basically when things go bad, a lot of times we can point and say, oh, well, I know why that happened because they're like this and they're kind of explainable. But there are those places where you look at them and you go, I don't know how to explain that. I don't understand how a good God meshes with that moment. I look at that place, and in the deep corners of my heart, honestly, I feel a lot of doubt. I wonder how a good God can coincide with a place like that. And for some of us, those places maybe harbor a lot of bitterness, right? Maybe you tuck them away, you feel like, I can't really ask that question. Uh, Others, I don't even think we want to think about it, right? So let's just kind of cruise on where life is easy and explainable and kind of makes sense. Those places that really drive me to doubt, uh, I don't want to think about it. And so it can be tempting, I think, though, as Christians to go, all right, I, I get that Jesus is real and that in him I have my hope and salvation, and that's cool. I buy that. This idea that God is going to make everything right and all things new, that Revelation 21 is going to happen, that there's going to be a new kingdom and a new earth, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and the awful things in the world will be turned on their head, that's tougher for, for, for me to swallow. And so a lot of times as Christians, I think we kind of go through life like we're kind of clinging to this promise of salvation and that other stuff. We're like, I don't, I don't really know if that's true. I kind of hope it is. And we live a little hopelessly sometimes as believers, even though we have these tremendous promises. Well, the argument of this passage is that we can live with hope because God is a good creator, he's a good father, and he's a good king. And I want to look at those three in order. So if you'll follow along with me. Firstly, God is a good creator. And so, like I said, you can picture this army marching up to the gates and they're singing out, you know, the earth is the Lord's. So you want to know who this guy is? Well, the earth, the, all of it is his. Everything that you see, the trees, the rivers. If you go to any place in the world and you find a place that no one's seen before, even there you'll find the care of God, Right? If you discover a patch of dirt no one's seen, that dirt has been taken care of and created by this Father. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Tim Keller makes the argument that um, it can be easy for us to be kind of trite about God creating the world. And we know the story, right? God in the beginning, there's nothing, and then he says, let there be, and it exists. And at every point when he creates something, he says, this is good, and this is good. And it can be tempting sometimes to hear that and think about it, this is Keller's argument, like basically the person at the end of the, at the, end of the line, you know, they're making shoes or something, and they're just like, yeah, that's good, stamp, moving on. Yeah, that's good, stamp, moving on. Yeah, that's good, stamp, moving on. This is completely not the idea that's going on. The idea is more like when you take a bite of like a really good steak, and you're like... That 
is good. There's this moment of like deep joy and satisfaction. Like, hold the presses. That was awesome. Okay? And so when God creates things, and you think about Christ, Jesus, Son of God, wandering through the earth and seeing all these things about which God has made and, and delighted in and said, this is good stuff. Right? That there's something in creation that expresses the character of God. I don't think it's any, um, I don't think it's anything odd that a lot of people have their first encounter with God. They feel drawn to Him when they're on a summer camp somewhere and they're out in wilderness and things are stripped away and they look up at the blanket of stars and they see the order and they see some reflection of the person behind those stars. You know? You see some reflection of the person behind the creation. If you look at a picture that my son has drawn, you will learn something about my son. You'll learn that he's really OCD about a lot of things and really wants the lines in the right place, and he's really into, like, robots, right? You learn about my son by looking at his creation. And likewise, we can learn about God by looking at his creation. It's a joy to, you know, our third child to hold a newborn and watch him smile for the first time, and that's a reflection of God's character in some way. Uh, there was a priest who once said that one real thing is closer to God than a hundred diagrams. One real thing is closer to God than a hundred diagrams. And I think this is something we have as Christians that we can offer the world, which is kind of a re-enchantment of the world around us. There's a story told in Cal Newport's book, uh, Deep Work, which I highly recommend. He talks about a guy who had a really monotonous job. It didn't find it very fulfilling. Made good money, though, and felt like he was doing the right thing. But he got to a point where he was just so fed up with his job and felt like his brain was dying and he was becoming a worse person. He, he quits and does something really drastic and starts blacksmith work. He becomes like a smithy. And what's crazy about it is, uh, you know, blacksmith work is still incredibly monotonous. You know, we're talking beating with a hammer for hours and hours. And his response, I don't know if he was a believer, but his response was, somehow when I started that work, it re-enchanted the world for me. It re-enchanted the world. Something about that got him back in touch with the creation and then, I think, pointed his gaze upward again to the creator. If I think about us, we're all, we're all materialists, but we're not very good materialists. We tend to be really bad about our material. And I think a quick way to check in, like, how can we be a group of people as Christians who in our lives are engaging in things in a way that points to God and inviting people to engage in things in a way that points to God? And I think a good question is, are the things we are engaged in, do they point us towards gratitude or do they invite us just to stop and stay there? Example, a bag of Doritos. I could at any moment eat three bags of Doritos. I would never stop. I am limited in my Dorito eating by shame, some kind of willpower, and the fact that there aren't three bags of Doritos in my house right now, right? That's the only limits, okay? Why is that? That's because somebody worked really hard in a lab to design a Dorito so that I never feel full and I always go, I could eat more of this. This, to me, seems like bad material, right? Uh, and you can apply that to anything. You know, Netflix, you get to the end of a show and it immediately, like, a little thing goes, doo -doo -doo -doo, and it starts a new one. It's designed to make you stop and stay there forever. If you can do an activity for like 10 hours straight, maybe it's a bad activity, right? Um, and so we think about, on the flip side, what's good material look like? What's it look like when I like 
I wouldn't do this as much. Let's say my wife makes a great meal, right? She invites our sons to be a part of it. And they're cooking together and they do something awesome. And we sit down and you eat it. And when it's over, you don't think, man, I want to eat that again. You think, oh, I just want to enjoy having eaten that. You know what I mean? You have a bunch of friends over, you have a good meal, you have that like, and it pushes you towards gratitude and community and all those things. I think one thing we could think about is what things are we doing that just invite us to stop and don't keep moving towards the creator? And what things do we do invite us to go, wow, yes, that was good. Who's behind that? Uh, a quick story from uh, school, Stonebrook School. You know, uh, we're a Christian school, so we pray a lot. Not all students are a big fan of this. Uh, <laughs> pray before meals, pray at chapel and that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, they're students, too, so you frequently get the question, like, how is this like real life? Um, it isn't. All right. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's this play that we put on every year, the Theater Arts Society, TAS. And we put on a play, and it's always super ambitious and requires incredible amounts of work. And the students who do theater look like they're about to die half the time they're doing it. They complain the whole time. They do it every year anyway. And uh, they do everything. They create the props. They do woodwork. They make the sets. They learn the lines. They're interacting with each other. It's unbelievably impressive. And I heard that right before the first show, independent of the, the teacher and the leaders, the students got together, and religious or not, they said, let's pray together. Okay, what happened in that moment? is something about that experience re-enchanted the world for them, right? And I've heard this repeated in a couple of different scenarios where students go through something and they've experienced this thing with community and they go like, there's something in them that says this can't be it. There's got to be something else. As Christians, we're people who look at creation and say, there's somebody behind that. You know that love that you experience in community and good food and fellowship and all those things? There's somebody behind that who loves those things, who made them and said, this is good. We have that to offer the world. I think now more than ever, right? It's something beautiful we have that we look out around us and say, this reflects my father. So this army marches up and says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And the fullness means like the completeness, the best things about it, the best fruit is God's. He made it. Isn't that awesome? And so people are like, all right, cool. So everything is made by this God. That's good. But the next question is, does he want anything to do with us? Right? Is this a God who, uh, who has any stake in who we are and wants to know us? And then we get the second stanza. All right. Well, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not go to a thing and say, I'm going to stay right here, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now, this is an interesting stanza. All right, so on the one hand, this Psalm of David, written by David, David is saying, yes, the God who created all this stuff wants to be with us. And there's also a desire for a certain level of virtue, right, from people. He's looking for people who have clean hands and a pure heart, doesn't lift up their soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. And one thing we could, we could say about this is maybe we immediately feel nervous, like, ah, well, I can't be so great, I can't be so good. But I, I want to talk about what he's trying to do in this passage. 
What he's painting here is a picture, and I think this is buried in the in verse 6. What David is painting for us is a picture of someone who's on a deliberate quest. Okay? This is someone whose life is on a quest to stand before God, whose whole life is dedicated towards moving towards the person behind creation, who seeks the face of the God of Jacob. And that seeking of the face, okay, is the idea that we hear it so much, I think it can become rote. But the sense is, I really want to see the face of this God who has been faithful and loving to me. I want to behold his face. It's a little romantic. Like, I want, I want to see the face of the person who's behind all this. And then we have the face of the God of Jacob. He didn't choose Abraham. He didn't choose anybody else. And when you think about Jacob, I don't know if you know anything about Jacob, but Jacob's kind of a liar. He's is a deceitful dude. And it says, you know, uh, you need to be someone who has clean hands and a pure heart, doesn't lift up his soul to what is false, doesn't swear deceitfully, you know, like Jacob. And you're like, what? Jacob spends half the time running around deceiving people. But if we look at the life of Jacob, there are these moments where in between his failures, he sends everything away and he sits down and he just wants to be with God. He's famous for wrestling with God. His quest was full of a lot of mistakes, but it was a quest to sit and see the face of God. And that's the kind of person that David is saying is the person who ascends the hill of the Lord, the person who is on a quest after him, right? I think this is a helpful thing for us to think about, is this passage, it's not really about forgiveness. It's not about all those other great benefits we have in Christ. It's about union with God. Sometimes I think, and this is a small gripe, but sometimes I think when we preach, I, I have the honor of hearing a lot of guest preachers at the Steinbrook School one thing that I notice is sometimes we can talk about the benefits of being a Christian so much that we forget that the main thing is we're united with God. It's a little like this. Let's say there's a guy who really wants to marry this one girl. He's desperate to get married to her, but he cannot convince her parents to give the okay on him. Okay, Maybe he's, I don't know what his problem is, but he can't convince the parents to give him the okay. And he spends a year trying to woo the parents over to the idea of letting him get married to their daughter, and finally one day, they invite him over, or they meet up with him, and they say, here, I'm giving you the paperwork for a marriage certificate. It can be legal. You can marry her. And we're a little like, if we got that, and instead of running straight to the beloved, we then spend the rest of the time like wandering around like, this certificate's awesome. Look at this sheet of paper. It's fantastic. And sometimes I hear people preach about forgiveness as if that's the end. The point of being forgiven was that now we get to be united with the beloved, right? The point of all those good things that we get in Christ is that we get to be with Christ. That we have to seek the face of the God of Jacob. And so part of this stanza is supposed to be a check. Like, am I pursuing God? Because that is literally the end of what I'm pursuing. The goal is to be united with this creator, the good father. So we see in stanza one that he's a good creator, in stanza two that he's a good father, and in stanza three we see that he's a good king. I skipped over a verse on purpose, 24-2. If you look back on that creation, there's this little thing tucked away. It says, he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. 
Now, if you know anything about how the people viewed the seas back then, is often they would say that there were gods who kind of ruled the lands, but the seas were untamable. They were these dark places where basically no one had dominion over the seas. And even the Bible uh, itself, you know, in like Psalm 46, refers to the seas this way. It says, We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So the seas, the river, are seen as these scary, tumultuous places where there's very not a lot of order. Maybe there's no God who rules over those things. And what it says in 24 is that God builds his kingdom on these places. These seas were the places you would look at and say, if that exists, it makes me question whether God is good. Uh, a, an artist once uh, wrote in his book about, he called these places ground zero, ground zeros. And he talked about his own experience in 9-11 and his grandfather's experience with Hiroshima. And he said that when you looked at desolation, it were, it, the ground zeros were those places that you looked at and you said, if that exists, I don't know if God can exist. And it could be that huge, massive, obvious devastation, and it could be deeply personal and domestic, right? It could be abuse. It could be any sort of things that you look at and you go, I buy that God reigns all over these places, but that thing makes me wonder if God is in it for us. That thing makes me wonder. And what this final passage says, when it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in, is that one day the full kingship of God will be expressed. And all those places that we've said, I just don't know if there's a God because of that, will be conquered by a glorious king. And those of us who are Christians should know this more deeply than anyone else. Because the place where we should feel the most confusion, the place where we should look at the most and say, I don't know if God can exist because that exists is the darkness in our own hearts. Right? And if we're Christians, Christ has begun the work. He has come to our hearts and said, Open the gates! Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. All the envy and the pride and the darkness in our hearts is conquered and subdued by King Jesus. You know what's crazy is the guarantee of this is the cross, right? When Jesus goes to the cross, the ultimate ground zero, the ultimate place where there can be no God if this is happening, is when Jesus dies on the cross. And when Jesus is up there, he cries out the thing that we have all cried out in our hearts probably several times in our life. Where we have said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? If this is happening, how can you be there? And the kicker is, when Jesus was on that cross experiencing all those ground zeros that we experience, coming into the absence that we feel of God, those places where we say, it cannot be God. He enters into that place with us. He experiences it on the cross. When you felt the holes in his hands on that day, when his body was cold, it made people weep out of sadness. And three days later, they felt those same holes, and they rejoiced. They rejoiced. 
The promise of the gospel is that those places that you look at and you say there cannot be God if this happens, that you feel the holes and you weep, one day you will put your hand on those holes and you will praise God for how he has redeemed those places. I don't know how he's going to do it, but the promise of the cross is that he will. Behold, I make all things new. You know, my students... um, there was this one class I taught, uh, faith class, faith and culture class, and I thought, you know, if, if you believe, if you, if you buy into the resurrection, then I, I feel like every other domino falls. Like if, if you believe that Jesus literally, there was a guy named Jesus who died and three days later came back from the dead, then once you buy that, it's like, you, you're a Christian, right? So I spent some time on that and looked at the historical sources and did all those kinds of things. And amazingly, in, in the final paper, I had a couple of students who wrote, you know, I think the resurrection really did happen. I'm still not sure if God is good. And what they missed was they missed that the resurrection is the ultimate sign that God is good. Is the ultimate sign that He is a good creator, that He's a good Father, and that He's a good King. And He wants us to be with Him, and He is going to redeem every dark place. What this means for us is that we can live lives of hope we can not give up. We can look at year 10 of a situation that's gone on forever that every time you look at, it causes you pain and frustration and say, that's going to be redeemed. We can look at those ground zeros and say, Jesus is king even of those places. We can say, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are our king. We thank you that you have subdued our hearts. That you have opened those gates that the king of glory may come in. And because of that, you have set us on a quest to seek your face. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the charge to go forth, to share that goodness with others, to reveal the goodness of your creation to others. Father, may we do it with hope. May we do it with joy because of the joy and the hope that is guaranteed for us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.